turn to Luke chapter 19 together for this morning. Luke chapter 19. It's the passage that we've been reading uh, through our worship together. This amazing moment when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And there is this moment, this spark when people seem to get it. It spreads like a rumor through the crowd. He's the one. The Messiah has come. And there's reasons for that that we'll look into as we explore this passage in just a moment. And in their excitement, they've got to welcome him. So they start grabbing palm leaves off trees and throw them on the floor, this sort of makeshift red carpet, just to try and make the place as, as welcoming, as open as possible for this new king. They start to take off robes, which back in the day were so important for your status and your personhood and your identity, and just throw them down on the road before him. You can imagine for the disciples what this moment must have been like. You can imagine for the authorities how scary this moment must have been. And if that wasn't scary enough, then they start to chant and sing, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna, as we've been singing this morning, we kind of think of as a church word, as a, as a worship word. But back in its original context, it's more of a political word. It means save us. And they're chanting this as he rides on this donkey into the city. What a moment. And that's where we're going this morning as we start Holy Week together. That's where I want us to begin. We're going to start with the theme of the borrower. And I wonder if I can ask you a question this morning. Uh, Where is your enough button? Now, however nice you think you are, we've all got an enough button button where we can take things to a certain level, but after a while we just have to say, that's enough now. Anybody here had a child who's learning to play the violin? You'll know a lot about this uh, enough, enough button. You, you'll know what it's like. For some of us, it's not, it's not that. For some of us, it'll be when we get into our car, we seem to have a different set of values. Have you noticed this? We, we suddenly change. We think of ourselves as Jesus followers, right? As good, lovely people. And then somebody cuts in front of us. And for a split second, we've got to do this. And we're wishing all kinds of things on the person that's done that to us. It's, it's awful. This, this stuff comes out of us, doesn't it? It's just beneath the surface. Maybe it's not while you're driving. Maybe it's when you get home and someone else has parked. Right, I know, right? Right in front. This should be illegal. Right in front of your house or the place that you normally have. I had a week of somebody, some people, parking in front of my driveway. Now, I think of myself as a patient person, but I don't know. I think I've got some work to do uh, there. There's this enough button, isn't there, uh, that gets pressed in our hearts and lives. Maybe it's not your driveway. Maybe there's a seat. Maybe it's in your house and you can see the, the, the view of the TV without any glare from the window at all. Or maybe it's in church. And sometimes we come in and that spot that we like to sit in, where we can see the projector but John can't look at us directly or wherever it is, or we get to sit with our friend. Somebody else has sat in that seat that they should have known has got the invisible name of mine in screen, engraved on it. And there's that line that gets crossed. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's your fridge. 
Have you got somebody in your family who seems to instinctively know? You've got no idea if it's a spiritual gift or a Sherlock Holmes kind of skill. They know what's in your fridge. I've got somebody in my family who knows what's in my fridge. Who gets fridge rights in your house? Who gets access? We've all got these lines, haven't we, that get drawn in our lives. If you think that those things are hard to handle, can you imagine the moment when as they're riding, as they're walking to Jerusalem, Jesus turns to a couple of disciples and says, then what I want you to do now as we go into this village, uh, I'd love you just to walk up into the village and you'll see a donkey that's tied up there. And I want you to untie the donkey and bring it to me. Now, the disciples are wondering what you and I would be wondering at that point. What am I going to say, though, <laughs> when someone says, that's my donkey that you've, uh, you've just untied there. So the Lord makes it perfectly clear for them. Well, if anybody asks you, uh, who, uh, why are you untying it? Just say, oh, the Lord needs it. Now, can you imagine today if we were to say to some of you, could you just, a couple of streets away, somebody's chained up a bike. Could you unchain it and uh, bring it here? But don't worry, if anybody asks you why, you, why are you nicking my bike? Just say, Jesus needs it. Is that going to wash with anyone? I mean, it's just so, it's so bizarre, this moment, isn't it? It's a line that Jesus crosses. It's somebody else's property. And there's all kinds of theories as to what's going on here. Some people have wondered, well, he's been in this village before. Maybe this is a prearranged signal. That he's had a chat with somebody and said to them, one day I'll be back. And your donkey is perfect, what I need it for. Can I, can I borrow it then? Other people have wondered if it's something else that's going on here. If anyone asks you, why, why are you untying that? Just say, the Lord needs it. The Lord. The word Lord is one of those words that we use often in church, isn't it? In readings and prayers and, and songs. But do we know what it means to call Jesus Lord? To call Jesus my Lord? The word in the original language in the Greek is, is kurios which means a person holding absolute ownership rights. Is that what I mean when I call Jesus the Lord of my life? Is that what you mean when you call him Lord? Jesus, I want you to have absolute ownership rights of my time, of my gifts, my relationships, of my finances, of my hopes and my dreams, my family, my reputation, what other people think of me. I, I want you to, to own those, Jesus. And when there are times when people ask me, what, why are you doing this? Am I willing to say, because the Lord has need of those things in my life. Kurios, somebody holding absolute ownership rights. The, the wordplay here is kind of teased out a few verses later because the disciples do go uh, and find this donkey exactly as Jesus has described, a young colt that's never been ridden on before. One that if you were in town looking to purchase one to carry your goods, you'd overlook because this one hasn't been trained yet. This one hasn't been tamed yet. You, nobody wanted one that had not been ridden on before, but Jesus spots this one. And so they do, they go find it, and they untie it. And true enough, the owners of this animal come along. Now, the word for owner here is actually the same word as Lord. 
It's curios. The curios of this animal says, what are you doing? I have absolute ownership rights over this donkey. And they explain, well, the curios, the Lord of lords, has need of it. When we call Jesus Lord, we're not describing him as just another owner, just another master. He is the Lord of lords, the sovereign over all other sovereign powers. It's easy, though, isn't it, to forget that. It's so easy to to let that slip from our minds. There's a time in the Old Testament when the people have come to expect things from God as kind of a a sort of a, a this deal, this brokered deal that they've got. If we come and offer sacrifices, and if they're good enough and important enough, and if my life is clean enough, there's stuff that I can expect from God. And so going to temple, which should have been a place of, of wonder and worship and learning and fellowship, became almost like this sort of transaction. I'm going to go purchase some blessing. I'm going to go get something from God. I'm going to put stuff in, into my deposit that I can draw on later in life. And uh, there are a number of times when God sends prophets to speak to them and say, actually, you could do away with all the sacrifice. What I'm really after is your heart. I love that song that we sing, when the music fades, I love music, but worship does not equal singing, and singing does not equal worship. He's, he's looking into my heart, and when the music fades, and when the greatest bands have stopped playing the greatest songs, worship continues, because God's, God's looking within, and there are times when he has to say this to the people of Israel. Uh, there's this passage in, in Psalm 50 where God gets so passionate about this. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. You've never looked at a scene of nature that is not owned by God. The cattle on a thousand hills, God says, is mine. So please don't think as you come to temple to sacrifice, it's because I because I need something. I, I'm not hungry. I'm not desperate. He goes on to say that. I know every bird in the mountains. You've never looked at a bird that God does not know. And the insects in the fields are mine. You've never been stung by something that God doesn't know. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the whole world is mine and all that is in it. If anyone asks you, why? Why are you nicking my donkey? <laughs> you can tell them the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. If we look at creation, we begin to see something of the wonder of God's jealous ownership of everything that he's made. Because he made it, it it's his, and because he made it, he's got a, a desire for it, a design for it, including me and including you. God sees us sometimes using what we've been given, our, our bodies, our, our lips, our time, our treasures, our talents, for things which he did not desire, which he did not design it for. And something of this passion resonates. The world is mine, your mind, and all that is in you. Uh, we see it in, in creation, then we go on to see it in the place that we find in creation. 
But we have a place, right, in, in this world. I don't know what yours is, where you find purpose and, and meaning, hopefully, in something to do that connects with, with your work, something that connects with, with how you use your time. It's not hopefully just about what's filling up a bank balance so you can retire one day, but you feel hopefully like you're adding meaning to the world, adding significance somewhere, adding value. And at one point, God calls the people of Israel to remember him in that. You might say to yourself, he says, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. How many people here are fans of The Simpsons? You can admit it, it's a safe place to admit. One of my favorite episodes ever of The Simpsons is when the vicar from The Simpsons, the Reverend Lovejoy, comes for Sunday lunch and around this table he asks somebody to say grace and they all panic and, and look at each other. So Homer says to Bart, Bart Simpson, if you don't know, um, lead us in prayer, Bart. You know. Say grace for us. And Bart Simpson thinks for a moment and he says, Lord, we paid for this food, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> but the truth is we, we can live like that sometimes, can't we? We should thank God for everything. Why? Because it's not my power and the strength of my hands that produce things for me. He says here, and this is a theme that runs right through this passage, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, his relationship, his promise, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And it's interesting, isn't it, how that little word is so similar. It's either my hands or me or it's he. But actually, there's a, there's a world of difference there. We should thank God for every single thing, but so often it's more like, thanks for nothing. We see it in creation, God's ownership. We see it in our work, but we see it most profoundly at the cross. Paul had to write to a church in Corinth, a, a small, new, thriving church, but it was surrounded by all these odd pagan practices and all kind of weird, twisted sexual hungers and, and appetites and desires. And Paul writes to them on, in two separate occasions at least, calling for them to be different, calling them for them to be distinct. And at one point he says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He says, listen, everything that God wanted and desired for that temple that we used to worship in, he now desires from you, that place you used to go to, now you are the temple. And now your heart, your spirit can become that meeting place, that encounter place, that sacrifice, that worship to God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's easy to think, isn't it, that all that God really cares about is my head and what I believe. Or that all he really cares about is, is my heart and what I love. You can see here God's passion. Honor God with the gift that you've been given. The bodies that you've been given. Why? Because God dwells there by his spirit and because he paid for you at such a price. This week, we'll begin to journey together towards Good Friday, where Jesus will demonstrate once and for all how much the Father loves you. And as we make our way through life, often 
either from other people or from, um, on, from ourselves, we, we become aware of all the things that are unlovely about us, that are unlovable about us. And what Easter shows us most powerfully, whether you know Jesus yet or not, is the price he was willing to pay to rescue you, to redeem you, to buy you back from this debt of sin. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. I wonder if you were to look at our calendars and our passions, whether we would look like people who are not our own. It's so easy, isn't it, to think to ourselves, well, I don't have to be part of that. That's my time, and I can decide what I do with my own time. No, my time is not my own. There are times when there are things, like when you're driving the car, but other times when you're so angry, when things just run out of us, don't they? Almost on autopilot, when we're firing words. Uh, and that's okay, because it's my feelings that have been hurt, and it's my life, and it's what I do with my... No. It's not about my words. It's not about my feelings. I've been bought at a price. I'm not my own. Some of you here will know um, the singer-songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman. He wrote a brilliant song a couple of years ago that's simply called Yours. Uh, and the first three verses are all about places that he's been. He talks about walking on the streets of London. Only Americans really can sing songs, uh, sing stories. We, we don't get away with it as, as Brits. But uh, he, he sort of sings this song about walking down the streets of London and realizing every street in London is yours. And he talks about walking down the dirt, dirt roads of Uganda and hearing children who have very, very little singing praise and thanks to God and realizing every child in Africa is yours. The chorus says, it's all yours, God. Yours, God. Everything is yours, from the stars in the sky to the depths of the ocean floor. It's all yours, God. Yours, God. Everything is yours. You're the maker and keeper, father and ruler of everything. It's all yours. We live in our Father's world. Tomorrow morning, as you get up and start the week, you'll be breathing in your Father's air. The people that you bump into, people created by God. It's all yours. That was the song. And then, at one season of their lives, this tragedy rocks their family. They have some kids of their own, but... They adopt uh, a young girl called Maria uh, through Compassion International, and she moves over and, and lives with them. And then one day in this bizarre accident, as one of his sons is reversing out of the garage, uh, Maria gets run over and in a matter of hours uh, dies from her injuries. And he goes back to this song and adds another verse to it, another place he's walked. I've walked the valley of death's shadow, so deep and dark that I could barely breathe. I've had to let go of more than I could bear and questioned everything that I believe. But still, even here in this great darkness, a comfort and a hope come breaking through, as I can say in life or in death, God, we belong to you. 
It's all yours, God. It's all yours. Everything is yours. Can you see how that is such a much better way to live? Even in the darkness, even in the questions I can trust, in life or in death, I belong to you, Jesus. The trouble is for many of us is that we get tied up, don't we, in all the stuff. Those things that we feel entitled to become attachments in our lives. Those things that we get wound up about. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Wound up. We, we do get wound up in things. Sometimes it's patterns of thought and behavior that get so entangled on us, it's, it's almost hard to separate where, where I begin and, and those things have got attached to me. And I wonder if for some of us today to move from where we are to a place where we say, God, everything is yours. We need to be untied from certain things. The word to be untied, again, is a really interesting word. It means to be un- unleashed from something, to be unbound from something. It's actually an unusual word to use in this circumstance. It's kind of a, a bigger word than Jesus needed to use. I wonder uh, if that's because he knew that we'd need to be unleashed and unwound and released. So what is it for me and what is it for you today that we need to be released from? So easy, isn't it, in our lives to have those things that we start to do because they seem to serve us. And then how soon we end up serving those things. Those things that actually at the end of the day when we realize how long we've been doing them, we think, why have I spent so long working on that? Why have I spent so long worrying about that. Those things that actually come to mean more to us than they should, and, and we don't realize, we don't recognize it until we stop and ask, why do I care so much about that? Why did I get so angry about that? What is it that I need to be untied from in my life? Of course, there's reasons why Jesus needed this donkey. There's a prophecy back in Zechariah 500 years or more before this moment where Zechariah foresees this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, victorious and righteous, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from, river, uh, from the river to the ends of the earth. There's a reason why this king rides a donkey. Kings don't ride donkeys. Jesus rides a donkey. It's deliberate. It's not a war horse. It's not a symbol of importance or stature. It's lower down. It's more awkward. It's more accessible. Jesus is saying peace is coming to this city, a new way, a new kingdom where broken lives are made new. He needed the donkey for that reason. This guy didn't know that. And very often, we don't know. When we sacrifice things, when we step out in faith on certain things, sometimes it's not clear why the Lord is asking this of us. Maybe it won't be clear for 500 years or more. Maybe we'll never know, but that does not let us off being unloosed and unleashed for what the Lord needs. Anybody here into internet shopping? I know a lot of people got into it during uh, COVID. Uh, I was reading recently about a report that suggested that over 50% of us 
have had an item swapped when we've ordered things online. And some of the, the funniest ones have been reported recently. Somebody who'd uh, ordered a bunch of fruit for school lunches uh, ended up getting some shoe polish. So you've got to be careful what you put in your kids' uh, lunch boxes. Uh, somebody else, so you have really got to be careful. Somebody else who ordered toilet roll uh, got a roll of sellotape instead. You've got to be, got to be so, so, so careful. It's easy to substitute, isn't it? It's easy to know that the Lord calls us to follow him, but to settle for a substitute. This crowd welcomed Jesus for a weekend. But by the end of that week, this same crowd who had crowned crowned him on this Sunday had crucified him by Friday. We settle for a substitute, don't we? We don't offer Jesus our all. We offer something that looks like it. But actually in our hearts, there's still those chains that bind us to things. There's still those, those bounds that we need to be untied from. So what I want us to do this morning is to spend time just, just praying and asking the Holy Spirit, what is it that I need to be released from? One of the things about the word that Jesus uses here to be released, is it, it comes up later on. Uh, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, uh, he talks about Jesus in this way. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that word freeing him is the same Greek word as untying the donkey. We have a God who can untie us. A God who is strong enough. And I know maybe for some of us here today, as we're thinking about being released and thinking about being loosed from things, there's that feeling of, I've tried. I've given it such a good go many, many times, but there's a gravitational pull that keeps bringing me back. Nobody is asking you to be untied in your own strength, but in this power, because the Bible is really clear that we are raised with Christ. That as we celebrate this Easter, we're not just celebrating Jesus' resurrection, but the fact that his resurrection holds the power for us to be raised with him. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead at work within us. So perhaps you'll pause with me today and just pray. For some of us today, the answer to that question, what is tying you up, is really obvious. What is it that's holding you back? What is the substitute that you're offering? For others of us, it'll be more hidden, more subtle. And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you draw near to us and help us to listen deeply to your voice. Risen Jesus, I thank you that you are here with us today. That as we gather in your name, you presence yourself right in the midst of us. And that where you are welcomed, peace comes. 
because in your kingdom, broken lives get made new. So we pray, Lord, today in, in Jesus' name, that where there are places where you need to prize our fingers back off something that we've held on to for so long, that you would come and do what we cannot, that you would do the deep heart surgery. Would you untangle, Lord, our attachments? Would you unwind our worries? Would you unleash our love? Would you release us, Jesus, for our renewal? And Lord, where there are places where we've offered you a substitute, a decoy, we pray, Lord, that you renew us in our passion for you, that this week as we journey with you, Jesus, that you teach us what it is to die to self, to see the, the flesh, the old person crucified, that out of that death might flow your life, your resurrection power. Jesus, would you break addictions that have held us for far too long? <clears throat> would you silence the voices of shame, the rumors of regret, the whispers of weakness? And might the lifeblood of your sacrifice, the life breath of your spirit, fill us afresh. That we might walk before you in newness of life. So we give you our chains today, God. We give you those things that have bound us held us even if all we can do is just to name them before you today and pray Lord that you would give us a renewed desire to want to want to change to desire to desire to be free Lord, because we so long to live lives that bring glory to you. 